Last weekend, Media Watch had a look at this, actually. Um, the TVNZ Colmar Brunton poll that was released last week, first political opinion poll of the year. And TVNZ and others reported uh, big falls in public support for the Prime Minister and uh, the leader of the opposition. I think 15 points for Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins falling from 12% to 8 <clears throat> Now, they said... Uh, this was big stuff. But, I mean, the, the real story was the huge jump in the number of people that refused to answer the question or, or declined to. And actually, Media Watch wasn't the only people uh, pointing this out. Um, UMR pollster Stephen Mills on 9 to noon had a big go at it on the weekly politics slot on that show. Um, and the thing is, since then, Colmar Brunton has actually released a fuller report of the results. And that shows more than one in three people who were surveyed didn't actually engage with that question. Um, so I tuned into um, TVNZ's weekly politics podcast, Inside Parliament, with its political correspondence, and wonder whether they would actually you know, confront this issue. Um, but they didn't. Here's um, actually what political editor Jessica Much Mackay had to say. And I, I, to, me, to me, I wasn't hugely surprised by that. The government's had a bit of a messy um, few lockdowns in Auckland. Lots of people are questioning why we needed to go into lockdown and the coming out of lockdown was messy as well. There were issues with communication. So I think that explains... Um, the Prime Minister's shine being rubbed off a bit with those numbers. Um, with Judith Collins, she just hasn't really been around. And so I'm not surprised that she's sitting on eight either. Yeah, so I was disappointed in that. No mention of that huge rise in people just not answering the questions. Because if you take out the people who didn't know or didn't care, the support for both those two major party leaders was pretty much unchanged. And if they're serious about improving those polls, as they say they are, and that's the reason they've um, they've stopped calling people on landlines, um, because they think it'll be more accurate, I, th- I think they should probably just do away with that question. It's a bit of a trick question, though, isn't it? Because if you're not that fond of the current PM, in this case, Jacinda Ardern, and your political leanings lay elsewhere, it's, it's difficult to answer because you might not immediately like the leader of the opposition and you may not know who else in, in your preferred party might be a possibility because often prime ministers, they just pop out of the woodwork, don't they? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jacinda Ardern, I guess, was not rating highly in any of those polls until, you know, she became the leader in that transition that a lot of people didn't see coming. Um, likewise, but, it, but the reverse is true too, though, because you can actually see it. And if you look at the Colmar Brunton website, they have a chart which shows the preferred prime minister ups and downs over quite a few years. And someone like Bill English was high when he was the party leader. They went into the election, which he didn't win in 2017, even though he got uh, the most votes, or his party got the most votes. Um, Winston Peters didn't go with him. He couldn't form a coalition. And then he kind of disappeared. You know, logically, people would be thinking, oh, I still wish that guy was prime minister. But he just vanished from uh, rating highly in that particular poll. So I think... The, the the popularity of the Prime Minister, whoever it is, and, and for people who do answer that question, skews the rest of it. And journalists end up talking about low polling candidates and comparing these kind of fairly paltry percentages and you know, is, is, and treating it like a barometer of you know whether they might actually be successful leaders of their own party and therefore one day possible Prime Ministers. And it, actually, as if to make that point, um, I took out a bit of audio from the same podcast. This is TVNZ's Mikey Sherman. And she was discussing uh, the prospects of MP in the National Party, Christopher Luxton. 
So in the two polls prior to the election, he was on 0.1 and 0.2. After that dismal election night result, which, you know, obviously the leadership has to cop a lot of responsibility for that, in our last two polls since the election, he's been on 2% consistently. So if he's, you know, still showing that strong showing, um, then, then you know, and the party numbers are going up, Judith Collins isn't doing much movement herself in the preferred Prime Minister polls, I'd be nervous and I wouldn't be sort of um, thinking that she's too safe until the end of the year. Yeah, so to me that sort of focus doesn't really serve the public very well because we know the opposition's struggling against a popular government. I mean, they're speculating about Christopher Luxon as the next leader on the basis of really really just a handful of people who are responding um, in that Colmar Brunton poll. Um, you know, the, the TV, those reporters went on to talk about Christopher Lux and saying, oh, he was a, you know, head of Air New Zealand, you know, he'd be fine in high office. You know, we know that it's a question of becoming, you know, getting the, the popularity and the support. But, um, I mean, uh, Todd Muller was successful in business and, you know, he managed to get the support of his party. Didn't work out for him. In fact, article in the Sunday Star Times talking about just what stress he was under and uh, talking very frankly about what that did to him. Uh, you know, that sort of thing didn't feature at all in the discussion of the, the TVNZ political correspondence. So I think they're becoming a bit obsessed just with the political strategy and not with what it really might take to become a good and popular leader of a political party. Well, Owen's text to say the move away from landlines to only online and mobile phones is likely to have changed the demographic. This uh, this changed likely younger demographic are uh, inclined to me, data security conscious, inclined to be, it's just a, a typo, data security conscious. That's from Owen, so he makes that point. Um, and this person, Colin, says, Hi, Karen, Colin's fibbing. It's a bit drizzly and cool in downtown Wellington with a southerly. It's not shorts weather. I hope he's not wearing those horrid cycle shorts. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not cycle shorts. They're, uh, they're, they're roomy ones. But, no, it is, it is true, actually, is at the end of our little hike back up the hill, it did start to... Um, it did start to drizzle a bit. It was getting cooler, but look, I was committed to it, and it was just the quickest way to get in, in here, get prepared, and, and talk to you was to put shorts on and, no and ride judgment. my bike. And, no sure. judgment. But uh, th- we're getting back to the polls. Often those pollsters, when they're canvassing opinion, uh, they'll ask you about a topical issue as well. So in, in that poll, what was it this time? Well, this was, yeah, this was a real shame, actually, because their kind of supplementary topical question was about housing. And I mean, with the the government announcement on Tuesday of their policy, that was really timely. the The question was a bit of a limp one in a way. They just asked, "Is the government doing enough to make housing more affordable?" Where you'd expect, uh, given the way the prices are going and the level of concern about it, most people would say no, and seventy percent did. Um, but Mikey Sherman, having picked on her there in the in that podcast um, for obsessing about the poll results in in a way that I didn't like, uh, she did a really good job, really good report. She was asking lots of uh, politicians around the house uh, how many homes they owned, and she got some revealing uh, and very hesitant answers from some MPs. How many homes do you own? <laughs> it's a big question, Mikey. Um, I've got yes, you have to think about it. You own quite a bit. We've got a couple. Four, five. No, not four or five. Three. 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 He's not the only one. How many houses do you own? Uh, three. Jerry Brownlee later clarified he actually owns six houses. Three are rentals. Are you adding to the woes of the housing market? Uh, look, I don't think so. I don't think I've added to the housing crisis. 
<laughs> so it was Willie Jackson, the uh, uh, Labour cabinet minister, and uh, Jerry Brownlee, um, National Party. I was going to say MP for Ireland, but of course he isn't now. He's just a list MP. They really didn't want to be seen on TV owning up to just how many houses they owned. And in fact, Wellington-based uh, MP Nicola Willis. Um, told Mikey Sherman she only owned the one house but for some reason volunteered the fact her parents owned two uh, or three I think uh, two or three but she said look I, I surely that's okay she told Mikey Sherman because even the Reserve Bank Governor um, Mr Orr owns two houses I don't know whether that's true or not but I, I thought that was a bit of a strange <laughs> comeback. Benchmark. Yes. Yeah exactly uh, Talking about Nicola Willis MP, uh, National MP uh, she's been very vocal too about feeling personally feeling unsafe on the streets of Wellington and uh, over this last weekend there were a lot of anecdotal reports from women who said they didn't feel safe on the streets of Wellington CBD. You had the Homegrown Festival and also the Super Rugby on on the weekend. Mm, Yeah I was out out late um, downtown uh, around about the time of that homegrown festival and I got a bit harassed by a few uh, drunk young gentlemen but um, no this is true there were actually accounts uh, they even made the Guardian so would have had an international audience uh, social media accounts around Wellington of things being pretty unpleasant um, downtown of Wellington last weekend also um, on the Scoop website too Massey University journalism students uh, wrote a pretty eye-opening account of what they saw, which also partly leveraged off those um, social media accounts which have been publicised um, far and wide. This is the Vic Deals uh, Facebook page, which is you know, quite an interesting um, little resource if you want to know, you know what's going on and how people are reacting to things in Wellington. But yeah, Winnicka Willis, she climbed into this because uh, she got into a bit of a political row last week with uh, Green's co-leader, who's also uh, Associate Housing Minister Marama Davidson. Uh, Nicola Willis had said, uh, I didn't feel safe walking around the streets of Wellington. And in Parliament, she accused uh, Marama Davidson of, and the government of not doing enough about the problem. And she came out and said, look, it's, it's to do with social housing. Uh, and people being moved into the centre city, including, she said, gang members who are creating these problems at night, making the place unsafe and unpleasant. Madam Davidson hit back, accusing Nicola Willis of being racist and classist and stigmatising poor people without proving that they were part of the problem. So this is really a building um, issue in the capital, and we've had you know, a a violent, uh, a fatal assault indeed uh, to Papa, which came to court this week, and um, even... Uh, on Monday, the Dominion Post reported that staff at the police headquarters were getting special on-street parking outside the building because they were um, afraid to walk to their cars at night after shifts. Gee, so if the police are worried about the streets around their own headquarters, things must be bad? Yeah, well, I don't know. There's a bit of scepticism about that because uh, knowing where that building is, the United States Embassy is right across the road and you imagine there's a few, fair few uh, CCTV cameras and surveillance going on of that. Just down the road, there's a very busy New World supermarket which is open till I think 11 each night and is, is pretty busy. So look, it isn't a hotbed of crime. So I don't think uh, that story was taken particularly seriously. But the concern about that uh, central city uh, violence uh, is definitely real and building. So is central Wellington a dangerous place to be at night? And you know, the other question is, is the media reporting the situation accurately? Well, it seems to be. Um, but the, the the thing is, there have been 
stories in the past about aggro and bad behaviour in the CBD, often this was to do with hospitality and bar owners saying, look, things are getting worse. They didn't make much of a mark because Wellington had so much other um, strife going on, burst pipes, munted buildings and a dysfunctional council and all of that. But there was one piece that really cut through, uh, which was by Katie Harris, a journalist at the New Zealand Herald. Uh, and it was called Why I No Longer Feel Safe Walking at Night. So a personal uh, account. She said, I lived in the capital for more than a year. During that time, I've been followed, harassed, catcalled, touched by strangers, accosted too many times to count. She said, I'm now getting reluctant to leave the house once the sun goes down. Uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's bad luck. Maybe we have a major problem. And she was really um, you know, applauded for opening up debate about that problem. I used the word anecdotal about that Vic Deals page, that Facebook page as well. So is that the issue with that piece? Well, partly. Um, I mean, the thing is, it was it only had like one other hospitality business owner in that. It was all anecdotal, her own opinion. I showed it to a few people and some said, oh, look, she lives downtown near the pubs and clubs and Courtney Place. Of course, there's going to be shady people or drunk people around at night. Um, you know, she just hasn't been here very long enough. You know, she, she won't, uh, she's not used to it, all that sort of thing. But Katie had already published stories about things like the seizures of um, things like GHB and liquid E and stuff like that used in drink spikings. Uh, she followed up that online piece, the personal piece, with one about actual police data showing that violent assaults, sexual assaults were on the rise. So, you know, she really has backed it up. But one thing about the anecdotal aspect of it, Katie was later interviewed on RNZ National by Jesse Mulligan. And um, he asked her what might actually explain why things are getting worse. Do you get there a feeling there are new people in the city, um, new residents or any sort of new activity that might be creating this? I've got a couple of texts sort of along those lines from people who, uh, who sort of characterising the city as having people in there that, that didn't used to be there. Mm-hmm. I have heard claims that, oh, there are more of a um, higher needs community in town, but I think the issue isn't that, that there isn't probably enough support for those people, and so we do need just a more hands-on approach I think, because it is really getting worse yeah, so Katie Harris seemed reluctant to say what might be causing it. If if she maybe she didn't feel didn't feel like she knew enough to say with confidence and certainty. But you know, it's interesting that when Nicola Willis, you know, MP who lives in Wellington, you know, said that out loud that she thought it was social housing and you know identified people she thought might be responsible for this. Um, you know, she got accused of racism and dog whistling and scapegoating vulnerable people and so on. Um, whereas you know, a journalist who who came out with a with a, a personal piece, you know, was applauded for it. I found it that a bit unusual, and it's it's happened a couple of years ago. Another councillor, Nicola Young, um, she was highlighting freedom campers down at Oriental Bay, kind of millionaires' row area of Wellington, um, who mostly turned out to be homeless people living in in vehicles. Uh, she was also accused of victimising uh, the vulnerable and so on. But reporters in that instance responded by actually going down to find out who the people were, talking to those willing to talk. And, you know, we learned a little bit more about what was going on and that little kind of micro example of of that problem. Um, but the same doesn't really seem to have happened for this latest round of stories about um, unpleasantness and um, people feeling unsafe in the, in the CBD in Wellington, which is a shame. Well, should we get on to the K-pop now? Don't diss the K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> this is poor old Giles Beckford, um, RNZ stalwart. Uh, uh, he uh, does the business um, throughout the day on RNZ, and you'll hear him frequently on Morning Report. Now, 
Last weekend, uh, BTS became the first K-pop act to perform one of their own uh, tunes at the Grammys, um, and that got a mention on Morning Report before the early business news that's about quarter past six on, on Monday morning. So after they played that, they you know segued into the business slot, and host Corin Dan um, asked uh, Giles Beckford for an opinion on oh, BTS. Korean pop. Korean yes. pop. It's a Game boy- name styles is it's about a, the extent right. of my knowledge, I'm afraid. It's... A, it's a boy band. They look pretty. They sing well. They're mass-produced. They're highly... They're successful. Highly, successful. Highly, highly successful. Highly successful. And they'll be replaced next month. <laughs> Such <laughs> more, cynicism, Giles. More than likely. It's the nature of the music business. Yes. Let's get on to the rest of the business. First... <laughs> yeah, look, uh, the sad thing for Giles there, uh, where he was a bit dismissive of BTS, uh, was that longtime journalist Gordon Campbell, who was writing the rock column for The Listener way back in the 1970s, was up early and listening, and he was uh, a bit better uh, informed about um, BTS, knew that Giles was about outside of his lane there, and uh, he didn't hold back in his criticism of Giles. Uh, he was able to give him some figures, no doubt, about how much money they're making. Yeah, it was more than that, actually. He said, um, look, uh, Morning Report, uh, to have say that, to be so dismissive, uh, is... Uh, is um, worth a rebuttal because it's so typical, says Gordon Campbell. BTS made their smash debut over seven years ago. They're the most popular band in the world for the past four years. Their fandom has huge outreach. Uh, And he said, look, it's more than um, just being popular and pretty faces and smooth pop tunes. Uh, They have weaponized their online power. They threw it behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, uh, Their fans raided Dallas Police's protest surveillance app. And they also um, are thought to be behind flooding the website for Donald Trump's rally in Tulsa with fake registration requests. You might remember that story. So they were bragging about how they were going to have a full stadium for his rally. And then, you know, reality struck, uh, says Gordon Campbell. And it was a a half-empty arena. So BTS are um, a bunch of guys that are not just pretty faces who will be replaced soon and uh, are just entertaining people. Yes, and let's let's clarify, they are not just the only K-pop band out there. No, this no, there's, 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 there's several indeed, but they are the ones who are right up there with the likes of Taylor Swift and so on in the international music business. And Gordon pointed out, actually, you know, RNZ misses a real business story there because BTS is the underdog story of a South Korean band taking on the world. Uh, He says if you want to look at it, $4.65 billion into the South Korean economy through just their album sales and concert tickets, he says. Uh, So yeah, this is uh, currently 0.3% of the country's entire gross domestic product. So a real business story there that, uh, you know, RNZ might have been aware of if they um, hadn't had the wrong idea about K-pop.